High over the city, Albert turned to death, who seemed to be trying to avoid his gaze. You didn't get that stuff out of the sack? Not cigars and peaches in brandy and grub with fancy foreign names? Yes, it came out of the sack. Albert gave him a suspicious look. But you put it in the sack in the first place, didn't you? No. You did, didn't you? Albert stated. No. You put all those things in the sack? No. You got them from somewhere and put them in the sack? No. You did put them in the sack, didn't you? No. You put them in the sack? Yes. I knew you put them in the sack. Where did you get them? They were just lying around. Whole roast pig does not, in my experience, just lie around. No one seemed to be using them, Albert. Couple of chimneys ago we were over that big posh restaurant. Really? I don't remember. And it seemed to me you were down there a bit longer than usual, if you don't mind my saying so. Really? How exactly were they just inverted commas, lying around inverted commas? Just lying around, you know, recumbent. In a kitchen? There was a certain culinariness about the place, I recall. Albert pointed a trembling finger. You nicked someone's hogswatch dinner, master. It's going to be eaten, said Death defensively. Anyway, you thought it was a good idea when I showed that king the door. Yeah, well, that was a bit different, said Albert, lowering his voice. But I mean, the hogfather doesn't drop down the chimney and pinch people's grub. The beggars will enjoy it, Albert. Well, yes, but... It wasn't stealing, it was just... Redistribution. It will be a good deed in a naughty world. No, it won't. Then it will be a naughty deed in a naughty world, and will pass completely unnoticed. Yeah, but you might at least have thought about the people whose grub you pinched. They have been provided for, of course. I am not completely heartless, in a metaphorical sense. And now, onwards and upwards. We're heading down, Master. Onwards and downwards, then. There were swirls. Binky galloped easily through them, except that he did not seem to move. He might have been hanging in the air. Oh, me, said the O-God weakly. What, said Susan. Try shutting your eyes. Susan shut her eyes, then she reached up to touch her face. I'm still seeing. I thought it was just me. It's usually just me. The swirls vanished. There was greenery below. And that was odd. It was greenery. Susan had flown a few times over countryside, even swamps and jungles, and there had never been a green as green as this. If green could be a primary colour, this was it. And that wiggly thing. That's not a river, she said, isn't it? It's blue. The Ogod risked a look down. Water's blue, he said. Of course it's not. Grass is green, water's blue. I can remember that. It's some of the stuff I just know. Well, in a way, Susan hesitated. Everyone knew grass was green and water was blue. Quite often it wasn't true, but everyone knew it in the same way that they knew the sky was blue, too. She made the mistake of looking up as she thought that. There was the sky. It was indeed blue. And down there was the land. It was 
green. And in between, nothing. Not white space, not black night, just nothing. All round the edges of the world. Where the brain said there should be, well, sky and land, meeting neatly at the horizon, there was simply a void that sucked at the eyeballs like a loose tooth. And there was the sun. It was under the sky, floating above the land. And it was yellow. Buttercup yellow. Binky landed on the grass beside the river, or at least on the green. It felt more like sponge or moss. He nuzzled it. Susan slid off, trying to keep her gaze low. That meant she was looking at the vivid blue of the water. There were orange fish in it. They didn't look quite right, as if they'd been created by someone who really did think a fish was two curved lines and a dot and a triangular tail. They reminded her of the skeletal fish in Death's quiet pool, fish that were appropriate to their surroundings. And she could see them, even though the water was just a block of colour which part of her insisted ought to be opaque. She knelt down and dipped her hand in. It felt like water, but what poured through her fingers was liquid blue. And now she knew where she was. The last piece clicked into place and the knowledge bloomed inside her. She knew if she saw a house just how its windows would be placed and just how the smoke would come out of the chimney. There would almost certainly be apples on the trees and they would be red because everyone knew that apples were red and the sun was yellow and the sky was blue and the grass was green. But there was another world called the real world by the people who believed in it where the sky could be anything from off-white to sunset red to thunderstorm yellow and the trees would be anything from bare branches, mere scribbles against the sky, to red flames before the frost, and the sun was white or yellow or orange, and water was brown and grey and green. The colours here were springtime colours, and not the springtime of the world. They were the colours of the springtime of the eye. This is a child's painting, she said. The O-God slumped onto the green. Every time I look at the gap, my eyes water, he mumbled. I feel awful. I said, this is a child's painting, said Susan. Oh, me. I think the wizard's potion is wearing off. I've seen dozens of pictures of it, said Susan, ignoring him. You put the sky overhead because the sky's above you, and when you're a couple of feet high, there's not a lot of sideways to the sky in any case and everyone tells you grass is green and water is blue. This is the landscape you paint. Twyla paints like that. I painted like that. Grandfather saved some of... She stopped. All children do it anyway, she muttered. Come on, let's find the house. What house? the O-God moaned. And can you speak quieter, please? There'll be a house, said Susan, standing up. There's always a house, with four windows, and the smoke coming out of the chimney, all curly like a spring. Look, this is a place like Grand... like Death's country. It's not really geography. The O-God walked over to the nearest tree and banged his head on it as if he hoped it was going to hurt. Feels like geography, he muttered. But have you ever seen a tree like that, a big green blob on a brown stick? It looks like a lollipop, said Susan, pulling him along. Dunno. First time I ever saw a tree... Oh, something dropped on my head. He blinked owlishly at the ground. It's red. It's an apple, she said. She sighed. Everyone knows apples are red. There were no bushes, but there were flowers, each with a couple of green leaves. They grew individually dotted around the rolling green. 
and then they were out of the trees, and there, by a bend in the river, was the house. It didn't look very big. There were four windows and a door. Corkscrew smoke curled out of the chimney. You know, it's a funny thing, said Susan, staring at it. Twyla draws houses like that, and she practically lives in a mansion. I drew houses like that, and I was born in a palace. Why? Perhaps it's all this house, muttered the O-God miserably. What, you really think so? Kids' paintings are all of this place. It's in our heads. Don't ask me. I was just making conversation, said the O-God. Susan hesitated. The words, what now, loomed. Should she just go and knock? And she realised that was normal thinking. In the glittering, clattering, chattering atmosphere, a head waiter was having a difficult time. There were a lot of people in, and the staff should have been fully stretched, putting bicarbonate of soda in the white wine to make very expensive bubbles, and cutting the vegetables very small to make them cost more. Instead, they were standing in a dejected group in the kitchen. <sighs> Where did it all go? screamed the manager. Someone's been through the cellar too. William said he felt a cold wind, said the waiter. He'd been backed up against a hot plate, and now knew why it was called a hot plate, in a way he hadn't fully comprehended before. <sighs> I'll give him a cold wind. Haven't we got anything? There's odds and ends. You don't mean odds and ends. You mean des curieux et des boues, corrected the manager. Yeah, right, and, uh, and, uh, there's nothing else? Uh, old boots? Muddy old boots? Old? Boots? Lots of them, said the waiter. He felt he was beginning to singe. How come we've got vintage footwear? Dunno, they just turned up, sir. The oven's full of old boots. So's the pantry. There's a hundred people booked in. All the shops'll be shut. Where's chef? William's trying to get him to come out of the privy, sir. He's locked himself in and is having one of his moments. Something's cooking. What's that I can smell? Me, sir. Old boots, muttered the manager. Old boots, old boots. Leather, are they? Not clogs or, or rubber or anything? Looks like just boots and lots of mud, sir. The manager took off his jacket. All right. Got any cream, have we? Onions, garlic, butter, some old beef bones, bit of pastry. Er, uh, yes. The manager rubbed his hands together. Right, he said, taking an apron off a hook. You there, get some water boiling, lots of water, and find a really large hammer. And you, chop some onions. Rest of you, start sorting out the boots. I want the tongues out and the soles off. We'll do them, let's see, er... Uh, Mousse de la boue dans un panier de la pâte de chaussure. Where are we going to get that from, sir? Mud mousse in a basket of shoe pastry. Get the idea? It's not our fault if even Quermians don't understand restaurant Quermium. It's not like lying, after all. Well, it's a bit like lying, the waiter began. He'd been cursed with honesty at an early stage. Then there's Brodequin Roti Façon Ombre. The manager sighed at the head waiter's panicky expression. Soldier's boot done in the shades fashion, he translated. Eh, uh, shades fashion? In mud. But if we cook the tongue separately, we can put on languette brisée too. There's some ladies' shoes, sir, said an underchef. Right, 
Add to the menu, let's see now, let's see, uh, sole d'une bonne femme, and, yes, uh, servi dans un coulis de terre en l'eau. That's mud to you. What about the laces, sir? said another under-chef. Good thinking. Dig out that recipe for spaghetti carbonara. Sir? said the head waiter. I started off as a chef, said the manager, picking up a knife. How do you think I was able to afford this place? I know how it's done. Get the look and the sauce right, and you're three-quarters there. But it's all going to be old boots, sir, said the waiter. Prime aged beef, the manager corrected him. Uh, it'll tenderise in no time. Anyway, anyway, we haven't got any soup. Mud. And a lot of onions. There's the puddings. Mud. Let's see if we can get it to caramelise. You never know. I can't even find the coffee. Still, they probably won't last till the coffee. Mud. Café de terre, said the manager firmly. Genuine ground coffee. Oh, they'll spot that, sir. They haven't up till now, said the manager, darkly. We'll never get away with it, sir. Never. In the country of the sky on top, medium Dave Lillywhite hauled another bag of money down the stairs. <laughs> there must be thousands here, said Chicken Wire. Hundreds of thousands, said medium Dave. And what's all this stuff, said Cat's Eye, opening a box. It's just paper, he tossed it aside. Medium Dave sighed. He was all for class solidarity, but sometimes Cat's Eye got on his nerves. They're the title deeds, he said, and they're better than money. Paper's better than money? said Cat's Eye. Huh? If you can burn it, you can't spend it, that's what I say. Hang on, said Chicken Wire. <laughs> I know about them. The Tooth Fairy owns property. Got to raise money somehow, said Medium Dave. All those half dollars under the pillow. If we steal them, do they become ours? Is that a trick question, said Cat's Eye, smirking. Yeah, but ten thousand each doesn't sound such a lot when you see all this. He won't miss a... Gentlemen. They turned. Tea time was in the doorway. We were just... <laughs> we were just piling up the stuff, said Chicken Wire. Yes, I know. I told you to. Right, that's right. You did, said Chicken Wire gratefully. And there's such a lot, said Tea Time. He gave them a smile. Cat's eye coughed. It's got to be thousands, said Medium Dave. And what about all these deeds and so on? Look... This one's for that pipe shop on Honeytrap Lane. In Ankh-Morpork. I buy my tobacco there. Old Thimble is always moaning about the rent, too. Ah, so you opened the strong boxes, said Tea Time pleasantly. Well, yes. Fine, fine, said Tea Time. I didn't ask you to, but fine, fine. And how did you think the Tooth Fairy made her money? Little gnomes in some mine somewhere? Fairy gold? But that turns to trash in the morning. He laughed. Chicken Wire laughed. Even Medium Dave laughed. And then tea time was on him, pushing him irresistibly backwards until he hit the wall. There was a blur and he tried to blink and his left eyelid was suddenly a rose of pain. Tea time's good eye was close to him, if you could call it good. The pupil was a dot. Medium Dave could just make out his hand right by Medium Dave's face. It was holding a knife. The point of the blade could only be the merest fraction of an inch from Medium Dave's right eye. I know people say I'd kill them as soon as look at them, whispered Tea Time, and in fact I'd much rather kill you than look at you, Mr Lillywhite. You stand in a castle of gold and plot to steal pennies, oh dear. What am I to do with you? He relaxed a little, but his hand still held the knife to Medium Dave's unblinking eye. 
You're thinking that Banjo is going to help you, he said. That's how it's always been, isn't it? But Banjo likes me. He really does. Banjo is my friend. Medium Dave managed to focus beyond Tea Time's ear. His brother was just standing there with the blank face he had while he waited for another order or a new thought to turn up. If I thought you were feeling bad thoughts about me, I would be so downcast, said Tea Time. I do not have many friends left, Mr. Medium Dave. He stood back and smiled happily. All friends now, he said, as Medium Dave slumped down. Help him, Banjo. On cue, Banjo lumbered up. Banjo has the heart of a little child, said Tea Time, the knife disappearing somewhere about his clothing. I believe I have too. The others were frozen in place. They hadn't moved since the attack. Medium Dave was a heavy-set man, and Tea Time was a matchstick model, but he'd lifted Medium Dave off his feet like a feather. As far as the money goes, in fact, I really have no use for it, said Tea Time, sitting down on a sack of silver. It is small change. You may share it out amongst yourselves, and no doubt you'll squabble and double-cross one another more tiresomely. Oh, dear, it is so awful when friends fall out. He kicked the sack. It split. Silver and copper fell in an expensive trickle. And you'll swagger and spend it on drink and women, he said as they watched the coins roll into every corner of the room. The thought of investment will never cross your scarred little minds. There was a rumble from Banjo. Even tea time waited patiently until the huge man had assembled a sentence. The result was, I got a piggy bank. And what would you do with a million dollars, Banjo? said Tea Time. Another rumble. Banjo's face twisted up. Buy a, a bigger piggy bank? Well done. The assassin stood up. Let's go and see how our wizard is getting on, shall we? He walked out of the room without looking back. After a moment, Banjo followed. The others tried not to look at one another's faces. Then Chicken Wire said... Uh, was he saying we could <laughs> take the money and, and go? Don't be bloody stupid. We wouldn't get ten yards, said Medium Dave, still clutching his face. Oh, this hurts. I think he cut the eyelid. He cut the damn eyelid. Then let's just <laughs> leave the stuff and go. I never joined up to ride on tigers. And what'll you do when he comes after you? Why'd he bother with the likes of us? He's got time for his friends, said Medium Dave bitterly. For God's sakes... Someone get me a clean rag or something. OK, but <laughs> he can't look everywhere. Medium Dave shook his head. He'd been through Ankh-Morpork's very own University of the Streets and had graduated with his life and an intelligence made all the keener by constant friction. You only had to look into Tea Time's mismatched eyes to know one thing, which was this, that if Tea Time wanted to find you, he would not look everywhere. He'd look in only one place, which would be the place where you were hiding. How come your brother likes him so much? Medium Dave grimaced. Banjo had always done what he was told, simply because Medium Dave had told him to. Up to now, anyway. It must have been that punch in the bar. Medium Dave didn't like to think about it. He'd always promised their mother that he'd look after Banjo, and Banjo had gone back like a falling tree. It had been Ma Lillywhite's dying wish, although she hadn't known it at the time. Her last words to her son were, You try and get the horses... I'll try to hold them off on the stairs, and if anything happens to me, take care of the dummy. 
and when Medium Dave had risen from his seat to punch Tea Time's unbalanced lights out, he'd suddenly found the assassin already behind him, holding a knife, in front of everyone. It was humiliating, that's what it was. And then Banjo had sat up, looking puzzled, and spat out a tooth. If it wasn't for Banjo going around with him all the time, we could gang up on him, said Cat's Eye. Medium Dave looked up, one hand clamping handkerchief to his eye. Gang up on him, he said. Yeah, it's all your fault, Chicken Wire went on. Oh, yeah, so it wasn't you who said, wow, ten thousand dollars count me in. Chicken Wire backed away. I didn't know there was going to be all this, this creepy stuff. I want to go home. Medium Dave hesitated, despite his pain and rage. This wasn't normal talk for Chicken Wire, for all that he whined and grumbled. This was a strange place, no lie about that. And all that business with the teeth had been very odd. But he'd been out with Chicken Wire when jobs had gone wrong and both the Watch and the Thieves' Guild had been after them, and he'd been as cool as anyone. And if the Guild had been the ones to catch them, they'd have nailed their ears to their ankles and thrown them in the river. In Medium Dave's book, which was a simple book and largely written in mental crayon, Things didn't get creepier than that. "'What's up with you?' he said. "'All of you. You're acting like little kids.' "'Would he deliver to apes earlier than humans?' "'Interesting point, sir. Possibly you're referring to my theory that humans may have in fact descended from apes, of course,' said Ponder. "'A bold hypothesis which ought to sweep away the ignorance of centuries "'if the Grants Committee could just see their way clear to letting me hire a boat "'and sail around to the islands of—' "'I just thought he might deliver alphabetically,' said Ridcully. "'There was a patter of soot in the cold fireplace. "'That's presumably him now, do you think?' Ridcully went on. "'Oh, well, I thought we should check.' "'Something landed in the ashes.' The two wizards stood quietly in the darkness while the figure picked itself up. There was a rustle of paper. Let me see now. There was a click as Ridcully's pipe fell out of his mouth. Who the hell are you? he said. Mr. Stibbons, light a candle. Death backed away. I'm the Hogfather, of course. Um, ho, ho, ho. Who would you expect to come down a chimney on a night like this, may I ask? No, you're not. I am. Look, I've got the beard and the pillow and everything. You look extremely thin in the face. I'm... I... I'm not well. It's all... Uh, yes, it's all this sherry and rushing around. I am a bit ill. Terminally, I should say. Ridcully grabbed the beard. There was a twang as the string gave way. It's a false beard. No, it's not said Death desperately. Here's the hooks for the ears, which must have given you a bit of trouble, I must say. Ridcully flourished the incriminating evidence. What were you doing coming down the chimney, he continued. Not in marvellous taste, I think. Death waved a small grubby scrap of paper defensively. Official letter to the Hogfather, says here, he began, and then looked at the paper again. Well, quite a lot, in fact. It's a long list. Library stamps, reference books, pencils, bananas. The librarian asked the Hogfather for those things, said Ridcully. Why? I don't know, said Death. This was a diplomatic answer. He kept his finger over a reference to the Arch-Chancellor. The orangutan for Duck's Bottom was quite an interesting squiggle. I've got plenty in my desk drawer, mused Ridcully, 
I'm quite happy to give them out to any chap, provided he can prove he's used up the old one. They must show you an absence of pencil? Of course. If he needed uh, essential materials, he need only have come to me. No man can tell you I'm an unreasonable chap. Death checked the list carefully. That is precisely correct, he confirmed, with anthropological exactitude. Except for the bananas, of course, I, I wouldn't keep fish in my desk. Death looked down the list and then back up at Ridcully. Good, he said, in the hope that this was the right response. Wizards know when they are going to die. They generally know in time to have their best robe cleaned, do some serious damage to the wine cellar, and have a really good last meal. It's a nicer version of Death Row, with the bonus of no lawyers. Ridcully had no such premonitions, and to Ponder's horror, prodded Death in the cushion. Why you, he said, what's happened to the other fellow? I suppose I must tell you. In the house of death, a whisper of shifting sand and the faintest chink of moving glass, somewhere in the darkness of the floor, and in the dry shadows the sharp smell of snow and a thud of hooves. Sidney almost swallowed his tongue when tea-time appeared beside him. Are we making progress? I'm sorry, said tea-time. Sidney recovered himself. Um, uh, some, he said. We think we've worked out, uh, one lock. Light gleamed off tea-time's eye. I believe there are seven of them, said the assassin. Yes, but they're half magic and, and, and half real and half not there. I mean, there's parts of them that don't exist all the time. Mr. Brown, who had been working at one of the locks, laid down his pick. It's no good, mister, he said. Can't even get a purchase with a crowbar. Maybe if I went back to the city and got a couple of dragons we could do something. You can melt through steel with them if you twist their necks right and feed them carbon. I was told you were the best locksmith in the city, said Tea Time. Behind him, Banjo shifted position. Mr. Brown looked annoyed. Well, yes, he said, but locks don't generally alter themselves while you're working on them. That's what I'm saying. And I thought you could open any lock anyone ever made, said Tea Time. Made by humans, said Mr. Brown sharply, and most dwarfs. I don't know what made these. You never said anything about magic. That's a shame, said Tea Time. Then really I have no more need of your services. You may as well go back home. I won't be sorry. Mr. Brown started putting things back into his tool bag. What about my money? Do I owe you any? I came along with you. I didn't see it's my fault that this is all magic business. I should get something. Ah, yes, I see your point, said Tea Time. Of course you should get what you deserve. Banjo? Banjo lumbered forward and then stopped. Mr. Brown's hand had come out of the bag holding a crowbar. You must think I was born yesterday, you slimy little bugger, he said. I know your type. You think it's all some kind of game. You make little jokes to yourself and you think no one else notices and you think you're so smart. Well, Mr. Teacup, I'm leaving right, right now, with what's coming to me. And you ain't stopping me, and Banjo certainly ain't. I knew old Ma Lilywhite back in the good old days. You think you're nasty? You think you're mean? Ma Lilywhite to tear your eyes off and spit them in your eye, you cocky little devil. And I worked with her, so you don't scare me, and nor does little Banjo, poor sod that he is. 
Mr. Brown glared at each of them in turn, flourishing the crowbar. Sidney cowered in front of the doors. He saw tea-time nod gracefully as if the man had made a small speech of thanks. "'I appreciate your point of view,' said tea-time, "'and I have to repeat, it's te-a-tim-e. "'Now, please, Banjo.' Banjo loomed over Mr. Brown, reached down, and lifted him up by the crowbar so sharply that his feet came out of his boots. "'Here, you know me, Banjo,' the locksmith croaked, struggling in mid-air. "'I remembers you when you was little. I used to sit you on my knees.' I often used to work for your ma. Do you like apples? Banjo rumbled. Brown struggled. You got to say yes, Banjo said. Yes. Do you like pears? You got to say yes. All right, yes. Do you like falling down the stairs? Medium Dave held up his hands for quiet. He glared at the gang. This place is getting to you, right? But we've all been in bad places before, right? Not this bad, said Chickenwire. I've never been anywhere where it hurts to look at the sky. Oh, gives me the creeps. Chick's a little baby, near, 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 sang Cat's Eye. They looked at him. He coughed nervously. Sorry, don't know why I said that. If we stick together, we'll be fine. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, mumbled Cat's Eye. What? What are you talking about? Sorry, it just sort of slipped out. What I'm trying to say, said Medium Dave, is that if... Peachy keeps making faces at me. I didn't. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Two things happened at this point. Medium Dave lost his temper and Peachy screamed. A small wisp of smoke was rising from his trousers. He hopped around, beating desperately at himself. Who did that? Who did that? demanded Medium Dave. I didn't see anyone, said Chickenwire. I mean, no one was near him. Cat's eye said he had pants on fire, and, and next minute... Now he's sucking his thumb, Cat's eye jeered. Nyeh, 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 crying for mummy. You know what happens to kids who suck their thumbs? There's this big monster with scissors all... Will you stop talking like that? shouted Medium Dave. Blame it, it's like dealing with a bunch of... Someone screamed high above. It went on for a while and seemed to be getting nearer, but then it stopped and it was replaced by a rush of thumping and an occasional sound like a coconut being bounced on a stone floor. Medium Dave got to the door just in time to see the body of Mr Brown, the locksmith, tumble past, moving quite fast and not at all neatly. A moment later, his bag somersaulted around the curve of the stairs. It split as it bounced and there was a jangle as tools and lockpicks bounced out and followed their late owner. He'd been moving quite fast. He'd probably roll all the way to the bottom. Medium Dave looked up. Two turns above him on the opposite side of the huge shaft, Banjo was watching him. Banjo didn't know right from wrong. He'd always left that sort of thing to his brother. Er, uh, poor guy must have slipped, Medium Dave mumbled. Oh, yeah, slipped said Peachy. He looked up too. It was funny. He hadn't noticed them before. The white tower had seemed to glow from within, but now there were shadows moving across the stone, in the stone. What was that? he said. That sound. What sound? It sounded like knives scraping, said Peachy. Really close. There's only us here, said Medium Dave. What are you afraid of? Attack by daisies? 
Come on, let's go and help him. She couldn't walk through the door. It simply resisted any such effort. She ended up merely bruised, so Susan turned the doorknob instead. She heard the Oh God gasp, but she was used to the idea of buildings that were bigger on the inside. Her grandfather had never been able to get a handle on dimensions. The second thing the eye was drawn to were the staircases. They started opposite one another in what was now a big round tower, its ceiling lost in the haze. The spirals circled into infinity. Susan's eyes went back to the first thing. It was a large, conical heap in the middle of the floor. It was white. It glistened in the cool light that shone down from the mists. It's teeth, she said. I think I'm going to throw up, said the O-God miserably. There's nothing scary about teeth, said Susan. She didn't mean it. The heat was very horrible indeed. Did I say I was scared? I'm just hung over again. Oh, oh me. Susan advanced on the heap, moving warily. They were small teeth, children's teeth. Whoever had piled them up hadn't been very careful about it either. A few had been scattered across the floor. She knew because she trod on one, and the slippery little crunching sound made her desperate not to tread on any more. Whoever had piled them up had presumably been the one who'd drawn the chalk marks around the obscene heap. There's so many, whispered Bilius. At least twenty million, given the size of the average milk tooth, said Susan. She was shocked to find that it came almost automatically. How can you possibly know that? Volume of a cone, said Susan. Pi times the square of the radius times the height, divided by three. I bet Miss Butts never thought it would come in handy in a place like this. That's amazing. You did it in your head? This isn't right, said Susan quietly. I don't think this is what the tooth fairy is all about. All that effort to get the teeth and then just to dump them like this. No. Anyway, there's a cigarette end on the floor. I don't see the tooth fairy as someone who rolls her own. She stared down at the chalk marks. Voices high above her made her look up. She thought she saw a head look over the stair rail and then draw back again. She didn't see much of the face, but what she saw didn't look fairy-like. She glanced back at the circle of chalk around the teeth. Someone had wanted all the teeth in one place and had drawn a circle to show people where they had to go. There were a few symbols scrawled around the circle. She had a good memory for small details. It was another family trait, and a small detail stirred in her memory like a sleepy bee. Oh, no, she breathed. Surely no one would try to. Someone shouted, someone up in the whiteness. A body rolled down the stairs nearest her. It had been a skinny, middle-aged man. Technically, it still was, but the long spiral staircase had not been kind. It tumbled across the white marble and slid to a boneless halt. Then, as she hurried towards the body, it faded away, leaving nothing behind but a smear of blood. A jingle noise made her look back up the stairs, spinning over and over, making salmon leaps in the air. A crowbar bounded over the last dozen steps and landed point-first on a flagstone, staying upright and vibrating. Chicken Wire reached the top of the stairs, panting. There's people down there, Mr Teatime, he wheezed. Dave and the others have gone down to catch them, Mr Teatime. Te-a-tim-e, said Teatime, without taking his eyes off the wizard. That's right, sir. Well, said Teatime, just do away with them. Uh, uh, one of them's a girl, sir. Teatime still didn't look round. He waved a hand vaguely. 
then do away with them politely. Uh, yes, mister, yes, right. <coughs> Chickenwire coughed. Do you want to find out why they're here, sir? Good heavens, no. Why should I want to do that? Now go away. Chickenwire stood there for a moment and then hurried off. As he scurried down the stairs, he thought he heard a creak, as of an ancient wooden door. He went pale. It was just a door, said the sensible bit in front of his brain. There were hundreds of them in this place, although, come to think of it, none of them had creaked. The other bit, the bit that hung around in dark places nearly at the top of his spinal column, said, But it's not one of them, and you know it, because you know which door it really is. He hadn't heard that creak for thirty years. He gave a little yelp and started to take the stairs four at a time. In the hollows and corners the shadows grew darker. Susan ran up a flight of stairs, dragging the ogod behind her. Do you know what they've been doing, she said. You know why they've got all those teeth in a circle? The power. Oh, my. I'm not going to, said the head waiter firmly. Look, I'll buy you a better pair after Hogswatch. There's two more choux pastry, one for puree de la terre, and three more tourte à la boue, said a waiter hurrying in. Mud pies, moaned the waiter. I can't believe we're selling mud pies, and now you want my boots. With cream and sugar, mind you. <laughs> a real taste of ankh pork, And we can get at least four helpings off those boots. Fair's fair. We're all in our socks. Table seven says the steaks were lovely but a bit tough, said a waiter rushing past. Right. Use a larger hammer next time and boil them for longer. The manager turned back to the suffering head waiter. Look, Bill, he said, taking him by the shoulder, this isn't food. No one expects it to be food. If people wanted food, they'd stay at home. Isn't that so? They come here for ambience, for the experience. This isn't cookery, Bill. This is, this is cuisine, see? And they're coming back for more. Yeah, but old boots... "'Dwarfs eat rats,' said the manager, "'and trolls eat rocks. "'There's folks in Hawanderland that eat insects, "'and folks on the counterweight continent "'eat soup made out of bird spit. "'At least the boots have been on a cow.' "'And mud,' said the head waiter gloomily. "'Isn't there an old proverb that says "'a man must eat a bushel of dirt before he dies?' "'Yes, but not all at once.' "'Bill,' said the manager, kindly, picking up a spatula. "'Yes, boss?' Get those damn boots off right now, will you? When Chicken Wire reached the bottom of the tower, he was trembling, and not just from the effort. He headed straight for the door until Medium Dave grabbed him. Let me out! It's oh, after me! Look at his face, said Cat's Eye. Looks like he's seen a ghost. Yeah, well, it ain't a ghost, muttered Chicken Wire. It's worse than a ghost. Medium Dave slapped him across the face. Pull yourself together. Look around, nothing's chasing you. Anyway, it's not as though we couldn't put up a fight, right? Terror had had time to drain away a little. Chicken Wire looked back up the stairs. There was nothing there. Good, said Medium Dave, watching his face. Now, what happened? Chicken Wire looked at his feet. I thought it was the wardrobe, he muttered. Go on, laugh. They didn't laugh. What wardrobe? said Cat's Eye. Oh, when I was a kid... Chicken Wire waved his arms vaguely. We had this big old wardrobe, if you must know. Oak. It had this, <laughs> this, on the door there was this sort of face. He looked at their faces, which were equally wooden. I mean, not an actual face. There was a, 
all this decoration around the keyhole, sort of flowers and leaves and stuff, but if you looked at it in the right way, it was a face, and they put it in my room because it was so big, and in the night, in the night, in the night. They were grown men, or at least had lived for several decades, which in some societies is considered the same thing. But you had to stare at a man so creased up with dread. Yes, said Cat's Eye hoarsely. It whispered things, said Chicken Wire, in a quiet little voice like a vole in a dungeon. They looked at one another. What things, said Medium Dave. I don't know. I always had my head under the pillow. Anyway, it's just something from when I was a kid, all right. Our dad got rid of it in the finish, burned it, and I watched. They mentally shook themselves, as people do when their minds emerge back into the light. It's like me in the dark, said Cat's Eye. Oh, don't you start, said Medium Dave. Anyway, you ain't afraid of the dark. You're famed for it. I've been working with you in all kinds of cellars and stuff. I mean, that's how you got your name, Cat's Eye. Sees like a cat. Yeah, well, you try and make up for it, don't you? said Cat's Eye. Because when you're grown, you know, it's just shadows and stuff. Besides, it ain't like the dark we used to have in the cellar. Oh, they had a special kind of dark when you was a lad, did they? said Medium Dave. Not like the kind of dark you get these days, hm? Sarcasm didn't work. No, said Cat's Eye simply. It wasn't. In our cellar it wasn't. Our ma'am used to wallop us if we went down to the cellar, said Medium Dave. She had a still down there. Yeah, said Cat's Eye from somewhere far off. Well, our dad used to wallop us if we tried to get out. Now shut up talking about it. They reached the bottom of the stairs. There was an absence of anybody, and any body. He couldn't have survived that, could he? said Medium Dave. I saw him as he went past, said Cat's Eye. Necks aren't supposed to bend that way. He squinted upwards. Who's that moving up there? How are their necks moving? quavered Chicken Wire. Split up, said Medium Dave. And this time, all take a stairway. Then they can't come back down. Who are they? Why are they here? Why are we here? said Peachy. He started and looked behind him. Taking our money after us putting up with him? Yeah, said Peachy, distantly trailing after the others. Uh, do you hear that noise just then? What noise? Sort of clipping, snipping. No, 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 you must have imagined it. Peachy nodded miserably. As he walked up the stairs, little shadows raced through the stone and followed his feet. Susan darted off the stairs and dragged the ogod along a corridor lined with white doors. I think they saw us, she said, and if they're tooth fairies, there's been a really stupid equal opportunities policy. She pushed open a door. There were no windows to the room, but it was lit perfectly well by the walls themselves. Down the middle of the room was something like a display case, its lid gaping open. Bits of card littered the floor. She reached down and picked one up and read, Thomas Ague, aged four and nearly three quarters, nine castle view, stow lat. The writing was in a meticulous rounded script. She crossed the passage to another room, where there was the same scene of devastation. So now we know where the teeth were, she said. They must have taken them out of everywhere and carried them downstairs. What for? she sighed. It's such old magic, it isn't even magic anymore, she said. If you've got a piece of someone's hair, or a nail clipping, or a tooth, you can control them. The O-God tried to focus. 
That heap's controlling millions of children. Yes, adults too by now. And you, you could make them think things and do things. She nodded. Yes. You could get them to open Dad's wallet and post the contents to some address. Well, I, I hadn't thought of that, but yes, I suppose you could. Or go downstairs and smash all the bottles in the drinks cabinet and promise never to take a drink when they grow up, said the O-God, hopefully. What are you talking about? It's all right for you. You don't wake up every morning and see your whole life flush before your eyes. Medium Dave and Cat's Eye ran down the passage and stopped where it forked. You go that way, I'll... Why don't we stick together, said Cat's Eye. What's got into everyone? I saw you bite the throats out of a couple of guard dogs when we did that job in Quirm. Want me to hold your hand? You check the doors down there. I'll check them along here. He walked off. Cat's Eye peered down the other passage. There weren't many doors down there. It wasn't very long, and as tea time had said, there was nothing dangerous here that they hadn't brought with them. He heard voices coming from a doorway and sagged with relief. He could deal with humans. As he approached, a sound made him look round. Shadows were racing down the passage behind him. They cascaded down the walls and flowed over the ceiling. Where shadows met, they became darker. And darker. And rose and leapt. What was that? said Susan. Sounded like the start of a scream, said Bilius. Susan threw open the door. There was no one outside. There was movement, though. She saw a patch of darkness in the corner of a wall shrink and fade, and another shadow slid around the bend of the corridor. And there was a pair of boots in the centre of the corridor. She hadn't remembered any boots there before. She sniffed. The air tasted of rats and damp and mould. Let's get out of here, she said. How are we going to find Violet in all these rooms? I don't know. I should be able to sense her, but I can't. Susan peered around the end of the corridor. She could hear men shouting some way off. They slipped out onto the stairs again and managed another flight. There were more rooms here, and in each one a cabinet that had been broken open. Shadows moved in the corners. The effect was as though some invisible light source was gently shifting. This reminds me a lot of your, um, of your grandfather's place, said the O-God. I know, said Susan. There aren't any rules except the ones he makes up as he goes along. I can't see him being very happy if someone got in and started pulling the library apart. She stopped. When she spoke again, her voice had a different tone. This is a children's place, she said. The rules are what children believe. Well, that's a relief. You think so? Things aren't going to be right. In the soul cake ducks country, ducks can lay chocolate eggs, in the same way that death's country is black and sombre because that's what people believe. He's very conventional about that sort of thing. Skull and bone decorations all over the place. And this place? Pretty flowers and an odd sky. I think it's going to be a lot worse than that. And very odd, too. More odd than it is now? I don't think it's possible to die here. That man who fell down the stairs looked pretty dead to me. Oh, you die? But not here. You, let's see. Yes, you go somewhere else, away. You're just not seen anymore. That's about all you understand when you're three. Grandfather said it wasn't like that fifty years ago. He said you often couldn't see the bed for everyone having a good cry. Now they just tell the child that Grandma's gone. For three weeks, Twyla thought her uncle had been buried in the sad patch behind the garden shed, 
along with Buster and Meepo and all three bulges. Three bulges? Gerbils. They tend to die a lot, said Susan. The trick is to replace them when she's not looking. You really don't know anything, do you? Er, uh, hello? The voice came from the corridor. They worked their way round to the next room. There, sitting on the floor and tied to the leg of a white display case, was Violet. She looked up in apprehension, and then in bewilderment, and finally in growing recognition. Aren't you... Yes, yes, we see each other sometimes in beers, and when you came for Twyla's last tooth, you were so shocked that I could see you, I had to give you a drink to get your nerves back, said Susan, fumbling with the ropes. I don't think we've got a lot of time. And who's he? The O-God tried to push his lank hair into place. Oh, he's just a god, said Susan. His name's Bilius. Do you, um, drink at all? said the O-God. What sort of question? He needs to know before he decides whether he hates you or not, said Susan. It's a god thing. No, I don't, said Violet. What an idea. I've got the blue ribbon. The O-God raised his eyebrows at Susan. That means she's a member of Offler's League of Temperance, said Susan. They sign a pledge not to touch alcohol. I can't think why. Of course, Offler's a crocodile. They don't go in bars much. They're into water. Never touch alcohol at all, said the O-God. Never, said Violet. My dad's very strict about that sort of thing. After a moment, Susan felt forced to wave a hand across their locked gaze. Can we get on, she said. Good. Who brought you here, Violet? I don't know. I was doing the collection as usual, and then I thought I heard someone following me, and then it all went dark, and when I came to, we were... Have you seen what it's like outside? Yes. Well, we were there. The big one was carrying me, the one they call Banjo. He's not bad, just a bit odd, sort of slow. He just watches me. The others are thugs. Watch out for the one with the glass eye. They're all afraid of him, except Banjo. Glass eye? He's dressed like an assassin. He's called Tea Time. I think they're trying to steal something. They spent ages carting the teeth out. Little teeth everywhere. It was horrible. Thank you, she added to the O-God who had helped her onto her feet. They've piled them up in a magic circle downstairs, said Susan. Violet's eyes and mouth formed three O's. It was like looking at a pink bowling ball. What for? I think they're using them to control the children by magic. Violet's mouth opened wider. That's horrid! Horrible, thought Susan. The word is horrible. Horrid is a childish word selected to impress nearby males with one's fragility, if I may judge. She knew it was unkind and counterproductive of her to think like that. She also knew it was probably an accurate observation, which only made it worse. Yes, she said. There was a wizard. He's got a pointy hat. I think we should get her out of here, said the O-God, in a tone of voice that Susan considered was altogether too dramatic. Good idea, she conceded. Let's go. Cat's eyes boots had snapped their laces. It was as if he'd been pulled upwards so fast they simply couldn't keep up. That worried Medium Dave. So did the smell. There was no smell at all in the rest of the tower, but just here there was a lingering odour of mushrooms. His forehead wrinkled. Medium Dave was a thief and a murderer, and therefore had a highly developed moral sense. He preferred not to steal from poor people, and not only because they never had anything worth stealing. If it was necessary to hurt anyone, he tried to leave wounds that would heal. And when in the course of his activities he had to kill people, then he made some effort to see that they did not suffer much, or at least made as few noises as possible. 
This whole business was getting on his nerves. Usually he didn't even notice that he had any. There was a wrongness to everything that grated on his bones, and a pair of boots was all that remained of old cat's eye. He drew his sword. Above him the creeping shadows moved and flowed away. Susan edged up to the entrance to the stairways and peered around into the point of a crossbow. Now, all of you, step out where I can see you, said Peachy conversationally. And don't touch that sword, lady, you'll probably hurt yourself. Susan tried to make herself unseen and failed. Usually it was so easy to do that that it happened automatically, usually with embarrassing results. She could be idly reading a book while people searched the room for her. But here, despite every effort, she seemed to remain obstinately visible. You don't own this place, she said, stepping back. No, but you see this crossbow? I own this crossbow, so you just walk ahead of me, right, and we'll all go and see Mr. Tea Time. Excuse me, I just want to check something, said Billius. To Susan's amazement, he leaned over and touched the point of the arrow. Yeah, what did you do that for, said Peachy, stepping back. I felt it, but of course a certain amount of pain sensation would be part of a normal sensory response, said the Ogod. I warn you, there's a very good chance that I might be immortal. Yes, but we probably aren't, said Susan. Immortal, eh, said Peachy. So if I was to shoot you in the head, you wouldn't die. I suppose when you put it like that, I do know I feel pain. Right. You just keep moving, then. When something happens said Susan, out of the corner of her mouth. You two try to get downstairs and out, all right. If the worst comes to the worst, the horse will take you out of here. If something happens, whispered the O-God. When, said Susan. Behind them, Peachy looked around. He knew he'd feel a lot better when any of the others turned up. It was almost a relief to have prisoners. Out of the corner of her eyes, Susan saw something move on the stairs on the opposite side of the shaft. For a moment she thought she saw several flashes, like metal blades catching the light. She heard a gasp behind her. The man with the crossbow was standing very still and staring at the opposite stairs. Oh, no, he said under his breath. What is it? said Susan. He stared at her. You can see it too. The thing like a lot of blades clicking together, said Susan. Oh, no. It was only there for a moment, said Susan. It's gone now, she said. Somewhere else, she added. It's the scissor man. Who's he? said the O-God. No one, snapped Peachy, trying to pull himself together. There's no such thing as the scissor man, all right? Ah, yes. When you were little, did you suck your thumb? said Susan. Because the only scissor man I know is the one people use to frighten children with. They said he'd turn up and... Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, said Peachy, prodding her with a crossbow. Kids believe all kinds of crap... But I'm grown up now, right? And I can open beer bottles with other people's teeth and... Oh, gods! Susan heard the snip-snip. It sounded very close now. Peachy had his eyes shut. Is there anything behind me? He quavered. Susan pushed the others aside and waved frantically towards the bottom of the stairs. No, she said as they hurried away. Is there anything standing on the stairs at all? No. Right, if you see that one-eyed bastard, you tell him he can keep the money, he turned and ran. When Susan turned to go up the stairs, the scissor man was there. It wasn't man-shaped, it was something like an ostrich and something like a lizard on its hind legs, but almost entirely like something made out of blades. Every time it moved, a thousand blades went snip, snip, snip. 
Its long, silver neck curved, and a head made of shears stared down at her. You're not looking for me, she said. You're not my nightmare. The blades tilted this way and that. The scissor man was trying to think. I remember you came for Twyla, said Susan, stepping forward. That damned governess had told her what happens to little girls who suck their thumbs, remember? Remember the poker? I bet you needed a hell of a lot of sharpening afterwards. The creature lowered its head, stepped carefully around her in as polite a way as it could manage, and clanked on down the stairs after Peachy. Susan ran on towards the top of the tower.